You're listening to K&J Recaps. Hey everybody, this is K&J Recaps back for episode two of HBO's series Westworld. I am Jess. I am Kim. Hi, Kim. Hi, Jess. How are you? I am well. I'm very excited to discuss episode two of this both futuristic and historic drama on HBO that is That's right. unbelievable melding of these two worlds together and uh, a little bit of everything from from Westworld. That's right. Uh, great second episode. Uh, there's so much to kind of unpack here. So why don't we just kind of dive right in? Sounds good. So guys, we're going to go through scene by scene as um, as we always do in lots of detail. Jess and I always go into probably uh, like a minute level of detail, but it's so fun to unpack all of the little things that, Absolutely. you know, otherwise might have been missed. So um, if you haven't already, uh, please subscribe. If you could um, rate or leave a comment on iTunes, that would be amazing. Uh, and you can find us at uh, KJ Recaps on Twitter or KJ Recaps on Facebook. Whoop, whoop. Boop, boop. Uh, Okay, so we start the episode with um, Dolores in her bed and there's a voiceover of like this unknown voice telling Dolores to wake up in the middle of the night and says, do you remember? Um, Who do you think the voice is, Jess? Yeah, so I went back and watched it actually a couple times, especially because we get payoff on this scene at the end right where she's out in the in her nightgown again so and of course it's very reminiscent as well of the voiceover opening of the first episode too yes Um, which was very very like recognizably bernard's voice in the first one but this was not a recognizable voice at first i thought it was bernard but you're absolutely right there's like a They've inha- I mean, something has been done to the voice almost yes. in my mind, right? Yeah, I turned it up really loud um, to try to identify who it was. And it has definitely been like purposefully distorted. Right. Um, so in my initial reaction, the first seconds of hearing it was Bernard. But you're absolutely right. I think it's it's not that easily identifiable. Um, so I don't know if it's a character we've met and we just aren't fully recognizing it or if it's a character we haven't met yet. What what were your thoughts? Yeah, I actually um, came to the same like initial conclusion. I thought that it was Bernard. But now, of course, I'm second guessing if it is Bernard. It, you know, that fact is being deliberately sort of hidden from us Um by the by the show so it's pretty clear that at this point they don't want us to know who that voice is but I also thought initially that it could have been a memory of Dolores being spoken to by Peter Abernathy her her the the prior father host um but then it became clear that this is not a memory of something that was said it was like current communication that was happening so and it's definitely, I mean, obviously an ongoing theme of this series, but the difference between memories, dreams, and then the mix of past and future as well, yeah. which we also see in this, it makes it tricky because where you think you're rooted, it turns out is not where you are. Right. Um, and so that's, and obviously that's intentional and it makes it really interesting to watch, but it is also tricky to evaluate what you're seeing right and and another part of that sort of an additional um 
you know, sort of complication is that you can't trust the timeline no, because so so in this in this episode for instance as you already mentioned Jess we see essentially this identical scene twice but is it the same scene two times or sorry is it the same scene that we are being shown a second time or did this actually happen twice because yes. Dolores is in bed in the same gown looking the same way like it, because the very nature of the host is to repeat itself like Groundhog Day you know like we don't necessarily know based on a visual whether we are seeing two separate scenes or whether we are being shown the exact same night a second time. Agreed, which is the nature of the park, which is highly repetitive, Mm -hmm. right? You, the park, we've discussed this last time too, but it resets itself. You're right. The characters are in the same costumes. So... You know, in, in some places, the show ends up giving you cues. Like, for example, I didn't know that when Ford is wandering around the desert, when that takes place until you get the cue of the shoes later on in the episode, right? Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, kind of intentionally distorting. So I think you're absolutely right. The point is not that we know who that is yet. And so we're just kind of going through these this weird piece. And Dolores is not featured very heavily in this episode at all. This is really mm-hmm. the biggest thing we get of her in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so we're, I'm sure we'll come back to that again because we do get a, a piece back to it. But in the meantime, we then get this great piece of exposition from the guest side. And it was really cool to see this, I thought, because last time we really didn't see this other than guests arriving by the train. But this opens up this whole uh, world of seeing it from the guest side and we see it through William um, his eyes and he's there with another guy <laughs> who's immediately... the worst by the way <laughs> I know there, the show could not do more to hit you over the head with the dichotomy between these two characters right. I feel because yes. even when they get dressed <laughs> there's a yeah, white we are hat seeing and there's a black hat and... two, two, two sides of the coin here for sure Absolutely. and like in my notes for lack of a better word because we did not get a name for the other guy I don't think but so I continue to refer to him as William's friend but it's pretty clear that William like hates this guy (laughs) (laughs) not my friend is what we get partway through this episode yes um so they're in you know kind of a futuristic style train of course again this is the dichotomy here between the world of Westworld and what the world is like in present day for the show which is highly futuristic very clean lines very bright lights all of those things um so yeah so he's with this man who i gather is william's fiance's brother yes um who also seems to work with him Yes, they work together and he somehow knows or is because he mentions my sister. So, right. So that's the kind of cue. They arrive at the terminal and then, yeah, we get that really great scene of all of the people being greeted individually by what we are pretty confident as the viewer, our hosts, because we've had this advantage of having seen the first episode and seeing what it's really like. But for William, he's not even sure as someone who is paying to come into this park whether the woman is walking, who's walking with him is a host or a real human being, which I think is really interesting. Very. That he can't tell 
the difference. Um, and and it's so true. She asks him when he does ask her whether she's real, and she says, "If you can't tell, does it even matter?" And yes. that's that's so true, right? Yeah. Like you know. So on the one hand, we have his you know friend who is saying like you know you can do whatever you want, you can you know kill and fuck whoever you want, um, and it doesn't really matter. But on the other hand these hosts are so lifelike that you can't tell the difference between them and another human. So, you know, is it really just this, um, you know, I I don't know, like escapism where, you know, they're, it doesn't really matter. They're not real people because if, if to you it feels and seems exactly like it's with a real person, then is there really a difference between that experience? Right. But then the whole moral question especially comes up because if they're so real that they're like humans, then how do you end up treating them as if they're completely not human at all? Exactly. So like, you know, the, you know, the, the friend is essentially saying like, it doesn't matter. They're not human. You can do whatever you want without consequences. But if to, you know, to you, it is as real as if you are doing things to another human being, then is that truly the case? And I think yes. that that's kind of a point too when the hosts ask him these medical questions yeah. so that they don't give him more than he can handle. And he says like, well, I thought you didn't get hurt here. But I think that what she's talking, I mean, like, could you imagine being witness to rapes and murders that look so real that, yes. you know, even though you can't be physically harmed, like, that's something that would stick with you, I would think. <laughs> Well, and I William feels like a great piece of moral compass here, finally, mm-hmm. because all we've been exposed to are these other than the family with the child are these really horrendous um, human beings who go there to do really horrible things. William is going along on maybe what is a bachelor trip? Like maybe this is something that, you know, people like to go and do. And he is obviously really affected by what he's seeing exactly what you're saying right um and so we can yeah talk about that because obviously there's more scenes to come with that but you're right they ask about his medical history and then they talk about this orientation or lack of orientation to the park too which is really interesting right um yeah and we talked last week about how in so many ways this feels really similar or just a building upon the amusement parks we know already. But here is where it really starts to (laughs) divert from that, right? Because the point here is that the experience has nothing to do with knowing what you're getting yourself into. And there is no orientation and there is no, you know, guidebook and no, I don't know, reviews of what you should be doing. It just is put yourself in it and go exist. Um, Yeah, like just your choices are going to essentially determine what your experience is going to be like. That's right. There's no predetermined narrative that they're going to live through. They are going to essentially create their own adventure by making choices within this world. That's right. And then she says, choices starting with your clothes. And this is where I find it interesting that he chooses the white hat and his jerk face buddy chooses the all black outfit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like that was a deliberate kind of nod to the the good versus the evil. Absolutely. Um, And then just as a bit of expose for us, the viewer, we do get the question of are the guns real? And she says real enough. So there we get a bit of what we were talking about last week, where obviously the bullets affect the hosts, but you can't kill anyone you're not supposed to, which likely means the other guests. 
right? Yes, yeah. Um, and that's when it switches from, they've been playing this game of, does it matter if she's human, yes or no? And then she, you know, indicates that she could stay while he changes or she could leave depending on what he wants. And then that's when she says the hosts are all here to service you know, him however he wants in everything. And I really feel like that's where you see him get creeped out, you know, because until this point, it's been an kind of exchange between two equals. They've been making jokes and puns and whatever. And then suddenly he gets that sense that the robot can't say no. So he could do whatever he wanted. But then because I feel like William has a bit of a moral center, why would you want to? Like, what's the what's the enjoyment of that when the the other half of what you're interacting with is just programmed to say yes all the time. Right. And this you know? is like, I think that part of this kind of creeped outness by William at this point is like, this is the first time that she acknowledges that she is in fact a host. So right. until this moment, he wasn't sure. But then and he can I th- pretend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To a certain extent, it might have been him reacting also to the level of realism, you know, to the to the fact that this you know, human that he's been interacting with is not in fact human. She's been a robot all along. And like, that would be disturbing to discover that, you know, like, these things are so realistic that you literally cannot differentiate them. Um, So this was the first time that she like acknowledged that she is in fact a host. Yeah. Um, So then we have Elsie um, in the lab. She's analyzing the recordings of Peter Abernathy. Um, So she's just noting that all of the other... um, hosts that were impacted by the update, they had immediate reactions. But for Peter Abernathy, he's like mulling over this um, photograph that he found of the woman in Times Square. It's like he's mulling it over. He made it all the way back home. And um, so she thinks that there's something more going on with him. And she's asking Bernard if she can rebuild the Peter Abernathy host in order to determine whether there's like something more going on. And she thinks that whatever Peter Abernathy had could be contagious, so to speak. She doesn't really elaborate on that, but um, she she wants to pull him out of like cold storage. Um, But Bernard says, no, like there's a policy against that. I assume that the policy he means is that like once a host is decommissioned, they can never be, you know, reinstituted back into service. Yeah, it seems to be something like that I would agree um and then uh so at the very least Elsie is saying well can we at least have a look at the hosts that he interacted with particularly Dolores um Bernard says no to that as well she's already been examined and cleared so I know that we're jumping ahead a little bit in asking this question but we obviously see this interaction between Bernard and Dolores later in the episode where he is having this kind of you know secret meeting with her because he does notice that something's different about her um so do you think that Bernard is just covering for that in this in this scene with Elsie or do you think that he literally just doesn't think there's anything to worry about with Dolores so do you read this as he is with Dolores because she's been acting strange or is he the impetus as to part of what's going on here? Like, I couldn't tell if it was that he had taken her for these secret meetings, but he's referencing these secret meetings having happened for a while. There's been 138, I don't remember the exact number, interactions since they last spoke. 
Yes. That means that they spoke long before the last update, no? Or has there been 138 since the last episode and I'm reading that wrong? Um, yeah, no, I definitely got the impression that these secret meetings have been going on for some time. Um, right. So whether so they that- have met since the last update, I don't know. But yeah, yeah. like this is certainly not the first. So is he um, just innocently as a programmer trying to figure out something that he's noticed for long before the update where things have started to go wrong? Or is he actually creating some of these issues himself? Oh, I see what what you're saying. Yes. So like, so when he says to Dolores, there's something about, there's something different about you, um, something different about the way that you think, you're pointing out that he would have had to have noticed this difference in her before the most recent update, because these meetings have been taking place for some time. Yeah, or is it that the update combined with Bernard's actions and these private interviews where he's... Because she says, have you done something wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, and he doesn't really acknowledge that. But if it was just Ford's update was the only thing that was causing issues here. I don't know. I feel like Bernard is implicated in this somehow as well. And whether that's in concert with Ford in terms of them both working together or whether independently because of their shared kind of God complexes, they are both doing things that are adding cognition or access to past memory or whatever it is um to these hosts like they're both doing it which is probably gonna really fuck things up yeah but i i don't know i read that as he is doing something he shouldn't be and that it's not necessarily just from a point of uh moving the point of the park forward it's something else i agree so i definitely got the um so the way that i took it to be was that Bernard was noticing something about Dolores that set her apart from other hosts in some way, something way her behavior or the, you know, he says the way that she thinks. And so Bernard, I think in his like unique kind of perspective about what the hosts are and they're these miracle creations. I feel like Bernard's perspective is in line with Ford's in that way versus like a Cullen or a Stubbs where this is like a piece of machinery to operate a business and that is it. Um, So I think that when um, Bernard was saying that um, other people might not be so, you know, like so taken or fascinated by um, Dolores's differences, I thought that he was saying that, you know, Cullen, for instance, would would see a difference between her and other hosts as a threat that she would then want to, you know, have Dolores decommissioned or something, you know, to, to that effect. Whereas he is more fascinated by the fact that she has a variance and wants to explore that further. And where do you think the variance comes from? I don't know. But I do think that your suggestion in the last episode that Ford might be more sort of like deliberate in his actions of making these things happen. I I was I wasn't so convinced last time we spoke, but I'm more convinced after this episode. And right. I actually think that Bernard is on the other side of the coin. So Bernard and Ford seem to be on the same team in many things. But um, after this episode, I felt like Bernard seemed um, 
I, I felt like Ford was taking these deliberate actions and Bernard seems to be noticing those things, um, but is is not in on it. So maybe the voice we hear at the beginning is someone trying to sound like Bernard because they know Bernard is having these conversations. Like maybe it's Ford, but not sounding like Ford. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it did not sound like Ford at all, but you're right. I don't think we could necessarily sort of like take that voice and who it most resembles at this point as any kind of indication of who it is who's speaking, because I think the show could throw us for a loop. Yeah. I do think, I guess, yeah, I'm still, there's something else behind what Bernard is doing in my mind, and that if it were just... I I agree. I think there's something else there for sure. But I don't necessarily think that Bernard and Ford are working together on whatever Ford is doing. Because Bernard mentioned several times throughout this episode, like Bernard is the one who raised the concern about um, Peter Abernathy, you know, the Peter Abernathy host being impacted by more than just the photo. And, you know, he's the one who says he suspects sabotage. But he won't, um, he, so he, he's keeping Elsie in the dark about this. Yes. And maybe that's because he just wants it to be private. But she mentions he covered up for Ford. She knows it. Um, and then also, if he were truly just completely scientific about it, I don't think he would decline to look at Dolores again because she raises a really good point, right? She's And she says, I know that you know that this activity of Peter Abernathy not the way he reacted to the photo not being the same the way others have. She said, yeah. I know that you know that this is meaningful. And he plays it off to her. Yeah, like, so I kind of read this as Bernard covering for Ford without necessarily realizing what he's covering and yeah. him trying to independently determine what is going on through his, um, like, interactions with Dolores. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I know. Mean, so, like I find this I, I find this part of the show the hardest for me to try to unpack. Like yeah. I really don't have any really good ideas about what's going <laughs> on. I think that we're, we're just going to have to wait and see for a lot of this stuff. Agreed. Um Okay, so coming back to that, we are back in Westworld. Uh, Dolores is walking through town, as we've seen, as part of her storyline on a daily basis, basically. Um, And then something, her face definitely is reacting differently than it has in the past. We kind of see her, it looks like she's thinking. And then all the ambient noise around her is getting really, really loud. And a man's voice, the same voice from the start, I would say, cuts in telling her to remember and then suddenly the street scene changes and it's dead bodies everywhere after a big shootout. Uh, um, and she kind of cuts back out of it because Maeve comes and tells her to stand somewhere else. Part of her storyline about, you know, drive away the customers or something, you know, about the brothel that she runs. And Dolores kind of looks at her and she says that same line that we saw in the last episode. These violent delights have violent ends. And turns and walks away and we see Maeve's reaction just kind of briefly there but what did you think about that sentence so I think that that sentence is a 
is keywords in the totally. same way that completely agree. Yeah. yeah, in the same way that in the first episode we saw the keywords that were um, rest in a dreamless slumber. Yep. Those were keywords that prompted the host to shut down. So yep. yeah, now I'm thinking that this sentence is a phrase that is intended to wake the host up, if you will, to their memories and, um, you know, their, their circumstances and, and surroundings to, to become aware uh, instead of just living in their loop. Um, so we do see that with Maeve throughout this episode, um, where after this sentence is spoken to That's her right. by Dolores, we see her start to remember past experiences that she's had as a, as a host. Um, yeah, so you read that the same way? Yeah, to me, this is the contagion that Elsie's talking about. I mean, Agreed. You know, and it's, it is a simple phrase. I think I referenced in the last episode, I feel it is dangerous to use simple phrases as your robot code words. That's right. <laughs> it's like, uh, while beautiful is problematic and we're seeing more of it. So you're absolutely right. Um, the dreamless sleep part, we see the countdown, the three, two, one in this episode, which obviously proves to be problematic. And then, yes, imagine they can just like a game of telephone, start whispering this phrase to each other in interactions. We also are going to hear further on, why do you make the hosts talk to each other when there's nobody around while they're constantly trying to learn from each other? But the ability for them to share this phrase is really substantial, you know, for sure, because they have so many interactions with each other. And I completely agree because this is Maeve is in normal and in her storyline. And then suddenly she is very much not. Right. Yeah. And so, um, really kind of with without maybe going sort of as deep into this rabbit hole again because I'm sure we'll talk about it more throughout the episode but um there has to have been something in their programming at some point that would make this phrase um work right so in this they they have been programmed to shut down at the phrase like dreamless slumber so they have to have been programmed at some point to you know, wake up to the sound of this phrase. But when Dolores was interviewed at the end of last episode and was asked by Stubbs and team, you know, like, what did your father say to you? And she told them this line, there was no reaction. Nobody had any, you know, had any idea. So, uh, you know, there has to be some kind of internal, like my, I think that the obvious conclusion to jump to is that it was part of the reveries that was, um, programmed by Ford in the lo- latest update. Um, but I don't it know if that's kind of too easy a conclusion. It definitely has Ford written all over it, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's poetic. It's an ancient kind of phrase. The, all of the people he's surrounded with now, I feel like the in the same way that I don't think these poetic phrases are the best choice from a programming standpoint, that seems <laughs> to be completely him. Um, yeah. You know, the, even when he was talking about the... Um, poets that he strung together in Peter Abernathy's past life in terms of what they were experts in. I mean, he's an older guy as well, but I do think that this, the fact that it's this sentence, you're absolutely right. Nobody reacted to the fact that they said it. It says Ford to me. And whether it is the reveries or whether this is deeply ingrained programming that has maybe always been there and nobody has recognized because simultaneously we also have this maze plot happening with the man in black in terms of like deep levels that are hidden in the game that it seems that others are not aware of um 
I don't think we possibly know that, but we, I agree with you that it's Ford. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I thought that was, you know, really great and interesting. And then just as a, like a very quick aside that in the previously on Westworld at the beginning of this episode, it showed Peter Abernathy whispering into Dolores's ear. And as he's whispering, you know, Dolores is saying in a voiceover, um, these violent delights have violent ends. And you can see his mouth moving with the words, you know, like, okay. so it's, it's very clear um, in that, at least, that he did say those words in her ear. And at least from that clip, it looked like nothing else was said. Um, so, so I think we, we were on the right track because we thought something else was said. But the point is, is that this phrase has more impact than there's more the, meaning. Yeah, exactly. And that the programmers didn't realize it for the reasons we've discussed. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Um, so we have just a really quick shot. Uh, William is now dressed. He's still in sort of this futuristic world. He's got his um, cowboy duds on and he chooses his white hat. And then he's sort of escorted through a door that takes him from this like white, pristine, shiny, futuristic um, building into the Westworld train that takes them into the park. So it's kind of, he's immediately transported. Um, and then the the train, of course, of course, starts to move. And he sees out the window that he's in this enormous sort of Grand Canyon looking um, park. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we move on from there to a man being, he's blindfolded and about to be hung for murder. There's um, a new sheriff host after in the last episode, that host was decommissioned. Um, so the man in black drives up. He wants to speak to the to the guy who's about to be hung. And when the sheriff resists, the man in black kills everyone. Yes. Um, so the guy be about to be hung, his name is Lawrence. And uh, the man in black says that Kissy, who is the card dealer from last episode, Kissy sent him to Lawrence. And he indicates Kissy's scalp with the maze on it when he um, is talking about it. Uh, and the man in black says that Lawrence is going to help him find the entrance to the maze. So. Yes. For not good ends for Lawrence. No. So, um, yeah, I wonder how. Um, okay. So I wondered if the man in black, he has, he knows who Lawrence is. Lawrence doesn't know him. But the man in black knows Lawrence. I think after 30 years, essentially, the man in black, like like Groundhog Day, right? Where he, Agreed. he, knows, yeah. he knows everybody. He yeah. knows every one of those hosts, I think, to a certain extent. And none of them know him, of course, because they have no memory. Um, Although he's even going to reference to the fact that there are still things he doesn't know when he meets yes. Lawrence's family, which is really interesting. Yes, I, I loved that. Yeah, I found that this um, reminded me of a book that I know we both read over the summer, but Ready Player One, yes. in the sense of being immersed in a world and having to pick up on very tiny clues. It's a I found it a really good read if anyone's listening, but um, just that concept of you had he has to spend thirty years before he recognizes the clues that are leading him, even still quite slowly to this deep level of the game, quote unquote, which he keeps kind of referencing, you know? Yes. And I don't even I don't know if we're gonna get the backstory as to how he got on to Kissy and knowing that the map is there or how well, he finds out about this. But that's what I was just gonna suggest is I was gonna suggest that perhaps Kissy is a process of elimination. 
maybe he has scalped virtually scalped every one of these hosts over the past yeah. 30 years. And the reason why he found that Kissy was the one that had the map is because he finally found the right one. But, you know, like... It just seems so... Inti- like, when he goes to do it, though, it seems so purposeful. Yeah. You know, if this were the, like, 1,999th host that you had scalped, maybe it yeah. would be a little bit more perfunctory. Although I do think part of it is that he's trying not to lead the management of Westworld on to what he's doing. Yeah, I have um, I have thoughts on that as well, which we can kind of circle back to when we get to that scene. But yeah, um, and you're right, too. I mean, like, um, so you pointed out in our last discussion, which wasn't something that I had picked up on, but you you had pointed out that it looked as if Kissy was trying to, like, throw himself off of the cliff in order to, you know, sort of avoid the man in black right. um, get getting his scalp. And I, I, you know, until you had mentioned it, kind of read that more as him just trying to get away from from being murdered, right? But I mean, maybe part of this whole whole thing is that the man in black is finding these um, very specific hosts that are hiding this very specific information based on sort of um, deductive work and the reactions of the hosts themselves when they're asked True. specific questions or whatever. So, um, yeah. yeah, really interesting. So Lawrence is dragged behind um, the man in black's horse and uh, they are presumably off to find the entrance of the maze. And the only other thing I um, I thought was interesting here is in that scene where William and jerk friend are on the train, we get the kind of first uh, reference in this storyline to the jerk friend says this place will get you you know it seduces everyone and it's the answer to who you really are because i find this is another recurring question and i love the end scene where ford rejects the new storyline i loved it yeah and so i think i agree i wrote down um three common themes that i um that that i picked up on you know in this episode that recurred um over and over throughout the episode and that was definitely one like the yeah. true true nature of yourself and how um you know the 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 park will will kind of bring out your true nature yeah and whether exactly and i think for you know jerk friend that's a completely different thing than you know what ford is talking about where he says um you're not just reflecting things that they already want on them. There's a much bigger point to the storylines that we're supposed to be doing because all of that this friend of Williams does is do the same thing that everybody else does there, or at least that everything we've seen, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no unique use of the park for him. And if he's just trying to show that in your true nature, everybody will, you know, kill and hoard up and do whatever, if there's no consequences for it, I just think it's such a, overly simplified interpretation of it compared to what is actually there. And he's just an example of how these guests are not understanding. The vast majority of the guests are not understanding the point of the park or are, you know, I don't know, glossing over their own flaws in justifying them through that kind of statement. Right. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I think that the majority of the park goers are just seeing this as their, like, super dark and twisted playground. And it's yeah. not meant for anything more than for them to fulfill their darkest fantasies without any repercussions um, and consequences. Versus the man in black, though he is kind of the darkest of all of yes. the guests we've seen thus far, he is 
isn't doing it just for his thrills. He's doing it for this deeper meaning and purpose that we haven't really established what it is yet. Agreed. Yeah. So this kind of rolls into the next scene even as well. So we get we're back to Maeve. And the last time we saw her was when she'd heard the phrase. She is trying to talk to a man in the saloon who's obviously a guest and obviously nervous. And she has this story that she repeats throughout. We see it a couple times. Obviously, as they're messing with her settings, it changes slightly. But it's all about it's trying to encourage guests to let their inner inhibitions go um yeah. so she's talking about the voice in your head and I, it all kind of relates back to who you really are that whole kind of question right and she's talking about dreams which is another really interesting piece that comes up in this yeah, episode definitely well. a theme in this whole episode for sure and nightmares yeah and um but in the middle of this story you know she's talking about how when she wakes up on the other side and she's supposed to have a sentence that finishes that and instead she is remembering back and so this is the first kind of cl- glimpse we get at the, of this we can see a few and she's being attacked there's a knife to her scalp she's out in the desert um it's kind of like hazy and hard to see and she trails off and so the guy is kind of freaked out because obviously this is not behavior that these guys regularly display and he walks off yeah um so that cuts to obviously the, i think in this episode too we see much more how in-depth this world is being watched, which makes sense, but we didn't get that in the first episode. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I really loved a lot of the behind the curtain stuff, not only like the guest onboarding that we already talked about, but also there was kind of like a a couple of allusions to the way that the various departments that, that, you know, operate behind the scenes sort of interact with each other. And um, yeah. And then of course we see a lot of these sort of hand, handheld, um, you know, devices like a super futuristic ipad (laughs) yeah hunger games for sure um where they are able to monitor you know literally everything no matter how remote it's taking place within the park that's right so this interaction um while the people who are um you know watching they don't really understand that she is having flashbacks which would be problematic they definitely recognize that a a guest was turned off by her and that is a problem so they are, it's the story people who recognize it. I would say, obviously, they're the people who are watching most closely, at least in the kind of individual. So cut back to Maeve in the lab and being questioned and this, like, douchey story lab guy. <laughs> I guess like the story guys are kind of like the jerks of the Westworld world as well. Yeah. Um, and it's a problem if the guests don't want to have sex with her because that's the whole reason that she's there they talk about Sizemore's new storyline and that the need to get rid of other um, hosts in order to make room for it and which so I thought was an interesting point as well like that was brought up in another scene also but like definitely they say in this scene that they essentially have to make room for the new yeah. hosts um, that would be brought in for Sizemore's new storyline which essentially tells the viewer that there are a finite number of hosts they're not just creating and creating and creating and populating this world with as many hosts as they feel like it there's a finite number that you know i presume maybe the you know the management of the park feels that they are able to uh, manage in terms of maintenance and that sort of thing so that 2000 um, hosts that we found out were in the park in last episode that sounds as if that that is sort of like the that limit. is that's the limit yeah yeah explain why there's like 
what looks like hundreds of hosts in cold storage too because yes. they don't all look like they're old like old uh like um, old bill right old bill yeah uh they a lot of them look like they're renewer but obviously if they only have room for so many then yeah uh so their solution i love this so they don't recognize any problem here which i find really interesting like the story people they watch her trail off i yeah. but they they don't really pick up on that. So their solution is to double her aggression. Right. <laughs> and because she's a hooker, you know, aggressive would be good. And that's what they're going to try. And then they'll send them off to the programmers if that doesn't work. Which, right. Yeah. So this, yeah. these people who are looking at them in this, at looking at Maeve in this scene, they are from the storyline department. Yeah. yeah. And then they say, if this doesn't work, we'll just offload her to the behavior department. Um, which is where I assume that Bernard and Elsie work. Well, because next place we see her is is with Elsie, so or at least the next place we yeah. see her in the behind the scenes is with Elsie. So I agree. I think it's that. I think behavior is programming. You know, Agreed. it's the yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Bernard is. Um, I I I I, th- I always thought think of this as like downstairs. I don't know if it is, but Bernard is like downstairs, <laughs> watching the host being built in like the Vitruvial, Vitruvian, yeah. Vitruvian man like white dip area with Ford. Yeah. Um. So he tells Ford that the two um, hosts that had been acting acting up. So they are Walter the Milk Bandit and Peter Abernathy. They've both been decommissioned, and he says that he found it hard to decommission them. Like he says, he found it hard to turn them off. Um, to which Ford says you can't play God without being acquainted with the devil, Um, which I find interesting, like basically, you know, making no qualms about the fact that they are in fact playing God with these creations. Totally. Um, But Bernard is also bothered by the fact that the photo alone couldn't have set Peter Abernathy off to that extent. We've already talked about this a little bit. So Bernard is jumping to the conclusion that he feels there's internal interference. And I'm inclined to agree with him. We've already talked a little bit how we think that Ford is probably um, not being on the up and up in terms of all of his um, intentions. Um, So but this was interesting. So Ford comments to Bernard that what he and Bernard do is incredibly complicated, practically practicing witchcraft. So in saying that, I think what Ford is telling Bernard is that it couldn't be internal interference because no one other than them would know how to do what they do. But ultimately, what that says to me is that there are very few suspects then and Ford is like a prime one. I agree. I think I don't know what is going on here <laughs> for sure, but I do feel that this is two episodes now where the conversations between Ford and Bernard are like highly choreographed dances. They yes. Nobody comes out and says what they're truly thinking. Obviously, Ford's nature is to not come out and say what he's truly thinking. He's an incredibly cryptic very. Uh, man who's been in power for a very long time. Every also, time he talks, I have to Google what he's talking yeah. about. <laughs> Um, and I was and like, then I like last like... episode, it was like pulling Lazarus from the cave. That's and then right. This episode, it was he was talking about Occam's razor. And, yes. um, you know, because Bernard says that sabotage would be the simplest explanation. Yeah. And, you know, Ford is essentially saying that in this case, the simplest explanation doesn't make sense because yeah. 
essentially they could be the only people who could do the in the you know internal interference so this is part of what led me to think that they are not in the cahoots because I, I there's no conspiracy planning between them even when they're entirely alone such as in this example but i i questioned whether they were both independently doing similar things which mm-hmm. is looking to adopt this technology to a level where it could become you know sentient or real uh, consciousness. And then the other thing is that I also find Bernard is so deferential to Ford that he doesn't come out and challenge him ever. We've seen that now numerous times. So if yes. this is Ford, Bernard is not going to be the kind of person who really stands up to him and he may even admire it. But I really, truly do not know what is going on other than obviously something. I don't, I don't either. Yeah, I do think that, that Bernard's deference to Ford is more in like a like a worshiping fatherly figure rather than you know sort of it being a fear of reprisal from ford or anything like that no i agree completely yeah i i completely agree um and it's just that he won't if so if if bernard is truly on the other side of this and he doesn't agree with what ford is doing then this will be an interesting dynamic because he will have to be go against what his mentor is doing yeah. or if he's on the same path um, and he is trying to do it himself independently as well, then the fact that they're both possibly introducing code or mannerisms could be problematic because they don't know what each other is doing and they're not talking about it. Um, but yeah. yeah, I, I don't know. Um, so another confusing scene with Ford and Bernard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So we're then with William and his friend and they have arrived in the town and this is where we also see William's newcomerness, which we already, as the audience, are so much more acquainted with this world than he is. So he bumps into that guy who everybody bumps yeah. into when they first walk through this scene. And he apologizes. Um, and his friend just is like, what are you doing? These are, you know, robots. So this is where we see the friend behave, you know, just that whole set of behavior associated with the people who tend to visit Westworld. Um and they there's an older man who falls off a wagon in a little bit and the same thing you know William helps him up I mean I am the kind of person who if I run into like a lamppost I apologize to it so I can't even imagine if you bumped into something that is so lifelike you can't tell the difference yes um and then the other thing is he doesn't know what's I mean, you don't know. This is the whole thing. You know, how do you know that's not a guy who's like getting back on the train at the end of his visit? That's true. That's uh, true. I mean, uh, like the whole point is you can't tell the difference between the hosts and the other guests. So that's right. On the first visit. I mean, if you're there multiple times, you see that guy walk through every time. And and I also see the friend's point in the sense that all of these hosts have the storyline set up. Like that's what he says about the old man. He's like, he's going to try and take you on a treasure you know search which is actually exactly what what, yeah what happens yeah and this is how you end up but because there's no orientation or guidebook or anything um and there's no allowing william to experience that for himself because the friend's like we're gonna go do all these yeah he's almost like don't be so stupid of course you're not gonna you know do that but how would william know and then it's also kind of like for the for the friend at least i feel like you know um, there isn't any other way in his mind to 
you know, to get the host to move on. Like, no, I don't want to do your treasure hunt. Um, right. There's no other yeah. way except like, you know, violence. Violence. Yeah, like <laughs> and, and brutality of the violence. host. I, like, I feel like if, if William yeah. simply politely declined this request for a treasure hunt, that would have been the end of it. But, you know, like, so... Yep. We're skipping ahead to a future scene here, but like, you know, the old man wants to take William on a treasure hunt. William, probably not used to speaking to something that isn't human, is politely listening to his spiel rather than cutting him off and declining, right? So despite the fact that the friend wants him to shut up, the old man just keeps talking. And then like, I just feel like there isn't kind of an in-between here. It's either you're like going along with it or you're you know, using violence to get the hosts away from you. But I mean, couldn't somebody just say no thanks and move on? Like, what a... I yeah. agree. And and it's so... The stabbing of the hand is so horrific. I, 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 was, I um, was like, really... I found that almost one of the hardest scenes to watch in these two episodes thus far. Because... I know. And the host's reaction is lifelike and awful. And, and, and you know, I mean, like, this is it's stupid of me to have thought this and it was just kind of an unconscious thought really I think that like I knew that the guy was going to hurt this man like the old the old man's host they you know they're pretty clear about that in the lead up but I really almost expected despite all of the evidence to the contrary that the man that wouldn't react because he's a robot I it was it yep. was jarring to me the realism that he reacted. And that was the moment to me, um, or at least one of the moments that have we've been seen that we've been shown thus far where like where I really kind of got what, you know, like William might have felt when he encountered this host for the first time, the the woman at the beginning, and and realized that she was, you know, a host after talking to her, thinking she was a human, that it was like I don't care whether that thing is a robot or not. That reaction was so realistic and disturbing and lifelike that my, you know, my internal reaction to seeing this, I feel would be the same, whether it's a robot or a human. Either way, it's impacting me in the same way to see it. Yeah. And how fucked up is it that that reaction is programmed for the ideal response for this world, for the... For the guests, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> totally. Anyway. Um, so we're still in the Westworld town, and Dolores is tying up her horse. And she, that same kind of scene we've seen over and over again, she looks up and she sees a reflection in the window. And this is where we get the scene um, that we've already kind of discussed. But it's Bernard back in the behind the scenes in the real world but they're not they're Um, still in westworld oh yes i went back and i rewound this a couple of times because at the first time that i wrote it down i took a note that said it's interesting that they're in the lab but dolores has clothes on and then i went back Uh, and i said and looked again and they are not in the lab they are still in westworld which make made me second guess when dolores catches her reflection in the window and kind of like stares at herself um it made me second guess that I think that Bernard is behind that window. I think that Bernard is somehow beckoning her over, you know, like remotely. And she it goes into that building to talk to Bernard. But I looked at the background in that scene 
and they are definitely in a building in Westworld, and Dolores has simply stepped off the street to have this interaction with him. Crazy. Yeah. I definitely did not pick that up. And he's not in any kind of, like, crazy garb. Not that I saw, but I think that, like, I think that he was, like, his day-to-day outfit is sort of, like, pants and a shirt and suspenders or something. Like, I think that um, he wasn't wearing, like, you know, a handkerchief and a and a cowboy hat, but yeah. I don't think that he necessarily stood out in any kind of crazy way in terms of his dress. But I do find, just as a quick note on costumes, that Ford and Bernard both dress Western E in in a old timey. That's right. I mean yeah. Bernard's clothes are it's always a vest and a collared shirt or it often is and uh, obviously we've seen Ford go back and forth between Westworld and the real world and he doesn't seem to really change you know it's no although I jackets yes I do think that like I agree that Ford in particular dress as dresses as sort of an old-timey gentleman but I do think that he sort of stood out actually a little bit in not being appropriately dressed when he came into Westworld dirty enough (laughs) yeah for sure and he I mean he came in to Westworld in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere rather than in town so there's a difference there also run into anyone Yes, but I mean, like, so we have seen both Bernard and um, Ford go in and out of Westworld without having to change their attire, and they didn't necessarily um, stand out as an outsider. So I think that's That's a good, you know, that's a good observation on your end. They can come and go without having it be a big production. But I definitely had not noticed that that was, but you're so, and the clothes is such a good point because we've already discussed that the hosts are always naked always nude yeah Yeah. which i really do think now and more and more is a way of distinguishing them from the real people too yes yeah i think that that's probably a good observation um so we already talked a little bit about this scene and the discussion that they have ultimately um for it is just having sort of these um secret talks with dolores he tells her not to tell anyone and he erases the interaction at the end of it yeah um So Maeve is telling the same story again to another guest, but this time she's much more aggressive after this story. The storyline people have bumped up her aggression. Um, So the woman that the guest that she's talking to, she declines her advances and Maeve orders a drink. Clementine is there and she's yawning um, and says she didn't sleep well because she had nightmares. So definitely the theme of dreams and nightmares is coming up over and over. Um, And Maeve tells her that when she finds herself in a bad dream, she just closes her eyes and counts backwards from three, and then she wakes up in her own bed. And I think that you had touched on this already, that that is the way that in the lab, when they're doing maintenance on the hosts, they like wake them up and put them to sleep at the count count of three. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, you think that that was a a touch on that? I was wondering if... Maeve as like the madam of the brothel has this was programmed with this ability that if that almost as if she's like a manager robot (laughs) overseeing her underling robots and this may be way too ridiculous but that that three two one was given to her in her programming as an ability that in the case like this um you know, where Clementine is not quite acting right. She almost, she basically resets her right there at the bar, right? Because then they have their drink and she is wide awake and she goes off to do work again. Um, And then, but she has the ability to reset herself, which nobody is prepared for, obviously, since she does it to herself mid 
surgery basically at the end um but i don't know maybe it's not but i somehow she has this 321 and the 321 is the ability to reset yourself uh and that's, that's a really interesting take on this whole thing. That was a really like, I, I didn't kind of think overly about it. I really thought of the three, two, one, um, essentially as maybe just a snippet of um, memory, for lack of a better word, of um, you know, uh, interactions that Maeve has had during maintenance sessions in the past that somehow stuck with her. Right. Um, and but that, I, that... I didn't think of it further. Yeah, and that very much might must be it, or might be it too. But I do think she she is not supposed to be able to reset herself, right? I mean, yeah. that's so. What happens at the end on the surgical table with these idiot like doctor lab people, tech guys? Know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they don't even think that this could have happened. You know, they just assume they haven't put her in sleep mode. So. Is it part of her storyline that she was always doing this? Did no one pick up on the fact that she would say this to someone like Clementine? And if they didn't, that seems to be a gap. But if they did and it was just her way of, I don't know, keeping the bar going. I don't know. I, uh, interesting. Uh, well, I'll, we'll have to like keep be on the lookout for that going forward. Because I really didn't, I didn't see it. Um, like I didn't see it as her resetting Clementine. I really kind of didn't, I didn't see it as her resetting herself when she woke up. I don't know how she woke up, but I like, I did not put those things together. But I think that's a really interesting theory that you have, you know, picked up there. So Okay, like we'll we shall, we see. shall see. Um, so uh, Maeve has some more flashes of being attacked, and her hand starts to shake. Um, and Teddy is there. He asks if she's okay, and she just blows him off. And then we have the cut to the scene where Stubbs and you know his team have been monitoring Maeve, and they mention that you know she's already marked as being on probation and her performance has continued to decline so stubb says to transfer the madam duties to clementine which appears to happen immediately there's like a yeah. beeping noise and clementine sort of you know reacts in a way where it, it appears as if you know she has been updated in some way remotely um and then stubb's orders Maeve to be decommissioned in the morning um so I thought that this was interesting. This was actually the scene that made me go back and think that perhaps Bernard had beckoned Dolores into that room for their secret talk remotely. Because in this scene, it becomes clear by transferring the the, the madam storyline from Maeve to Clementine in an instant that they are able to remotely communicate, remotely update the hosts yes. from wherever. Yeah. Um, yes, which I had been wondering about, and absolutely, I agree, it's, it must take place right away, and they wouldn't even notice that, I don't think they would even be aware of what has happened, other than now they just both have different, slightly different storylines. And they also mentioned that Clementine had had that role before, so maybe that's the reason, too, is that if you're accessing, you know what I mean, if it's not as much of an update, and they didn't have to give Clementine they were able to access something that she's done before. I don't know, but they do mention yeah. that she has been the madam before. Yes. Um, so then we have uh, Bernard talking to Colin. He, she's lighting a cigarette and he kind of um, 
you know, mentions that the basically management won't be happy about that referencing her. And he says that she only really smokes after talking to corporate. And obviously she's kind of rattled um, about it. And there's just kind of a conversation. Obviously this is the behind the scenes conversation um, and that there's this update coming. There's the launch coming, the new storyline and will they be ready for it? Yeah, I did have a quick note down here. I also assumed that when she said, Bernard, you know, tell me your department will be ready for the launch. I automatically assumed that they were referring to Sizemore's new storyline. But I also thought that there was the possibility that, um, you know, there are more things coming down the pipeline that they're not telling us about yet. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking because the storyline plays such a heavy role in this episode, but... Um, and obviously there are references as well to the board expecting a new storyline. So yes. there's obviously management has an interest in it and is paying a lot of attention to what's happening in the park. And I think um, I can certainly understand part of that in the sense that now that we've seen, I mean, we've only had two episodes, but we've seen a few days in the park. If you spent numerous trips back and forth, it would get repetitive. And yes, there are different things that you can do, but I can also see the pressure to constantly innovate and add new stories as well, right? Yes. Um, I can also only imagine what it costs to go to the park. Oh, I'm sure it's a fortune. More of the, exactly, more of the behind the scenes just shows how expensive it must be. So if you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever, to go and, you know, the same guy keeps asking you to go on a treasure hunt I yeah. can imagine the pressure. That yeah. would get old pretty fast. And they do, they have mentioned several times too about the fact that once people go once, they come back. Um, That's so right. they obviously rely quite a bit on repeat Return. visitors. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that scene just ends with him saying that all the hosts are back to normal, which is just a hilarious, like. Yeah. I think we know <laughs> at this point that even Bernard himself Things does not believe not this. Normal. Yeah. That's right. Um, so William and his quote unquote friend are having dinner. We already talked about this scene quite a bit, yeah. but um, so, you know, his friend just mentions that like the only way to or quickest way really to differentiate between a host and a real person is to is to shoot them. Um, but William's like, put your gun away. Um, oh, it's so ridiculous that you would just like shoot someone in the head at dinner or not shoot yeah. them, I guess. If just because real, you can't. But- yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a cut away after we have the horrible hand stabbing incident to his friend, you know, having an orgy while William is sitting alone in his um, in his hotel room and um, Clementine offers offers her services up to him. But he declines because he has someone real at home who's waiting. Yay. Yay, William. <laughs> Um, and Humanity. Then I can, yes, thank God we have one. Um, so then we have a really quick scene of Sizemore, who's being the dickiest of dicks. Oh, um, these story guys. He, I know, this British story guy. He's um, sort of sizing up the new hosts that are being made for his storyline. And he's not pleased with the nose on one of the hosts. So he smashes it with a metal tray and tells them to start over. And then a really quick conversation between him and Colin here about how um, Sizemore wanted 50 new hosts, but he's only going to get 20. Um, And this was also sort of the conversation that alerted us to the fact that like in order to bring in the new hosts for his new storyline, they had to retire others. So it's sort of keeping keeping the numbers consistent in terms of hosts in the park. Yes. 
Um, I was kind of surprised as to what Sizemore gets away with here. I really I thought when Colin witnesses that outburst that she's going to reprimand him more than she does. And it than, seems I to be she... a common thing. She's like, yes. you know, not surprised by it. Yes. Um, so I don't know if it's that Sizemore is such a phenomenal storyteller that they want to keep him happy. I mean, obviously, the story people are the creative types. So there is a little bit, I think, of that. You know, you have the... You already talked about this, but the interaction between the different uh, departments, everybody has their own kind of beliefs and um, orientations and et cetera. And the story people are obviously the creative people who are prone to emotional outbursts and yeah. <laughs> perhaps unlogical decision making, et cetera. And the programmers are highly analytical, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I thought that that was quite the outburst for a design issue with one of the yeah. hosts. I I agree. There has to be, I mean, I feel like there has to be something there, as you say. Like, maybe yeah. maybe he's, a, you know, like sort of a temperamental genius. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, or or maybe Sizemore doesn't report to Cullen, um, maybe. Yes, or, or even to Ford. Maybe there's a different yeah. hierarchy for the storyline or um, yeah. department or something. Yep. Uh, but he sure is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So we get the first scene of Ford back in the park, which we have discussed somewhat. He takes this elevator um, kind of out into the middle of nowhere. So he's not coming into the park the way that the guests do, which makes sense. Yeah. And um, which essentially kind of, this... kind of tells us that the, the the lab, at least part of the lab, is directly underneath the park itself. That's right. You're right. Um, which we have referenced this like large expanse underground. So it does kind of make sense. Like we must be near the edge of the park there too. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's this little boy or young boy and he asks if he's lost and they have a bit of a conversation. They're very similar. So at first I thought this was a real boy, um, that that was a potentially, you know, true story. But now I feel like it is a young Ford. Exactly. I uh, completely agree. I think that it was a host made in the image of Ford as a young boy. Yeah. And because Uh, especially when they they start having that conversation of only boring people are bored and they have the exact same thoughts and they obviously, so he's really just having a walk and talk with himself. Exactly. They're both British. I thought that it was also interesting that um, we get the scene of Ford looking down at his dress shoes in the middle of the dirt and realizing that that, you know, like, so that's obviously inappropriate footwear for this walk that he's going on. And I did think it was interesting too, that this little boy is also not dressed appropriately in in my opinion for the you know the walk that they're on um well he's in like a real british kind of schoolboy exactly he's wearing like short pants and you know he looks very british um yeah yeah, so i agreed i i um at first thought it was a real boy until they started having the conversation about being bored and all the similarities between their fathers and then came to the same conclusion that that's a young ford yeah um so uh, Lawrence, back to Lawrence, who's still being dragged yeah. behind the man in black. I just like to point out that this is why our recaps end up taking two hours. Is because this is a huge part of this storyline, and yet this is the first time we're back at it in forever. Like it's just crazy that this whole other storyline with Lawrence and the man in black happened. I know, but now in this episode, after not seeing them for quite a while in the episode, this is a long. Like we're with yes. them for a bit, um, yes. so we'll try to move through this. You know, like so through this part. Um, 
you know, with uh, some some speed because it's a long one but at the same time lots to unpack here so so um lawrence it has arrived at you know the man in black's destination which is lawrence's own hometown so kissy has told um you know the man in black about lawrence's hometown and he's surprised that he has this history with lawrence that of course lawrence doesn't remember but he has been on the man in black has been on past storylines with Lawrence and although he knows all of these things about him he knows the whiskey he drinks he knows the song he whistles when he takes a piss but never has Lawrence told him about his wife and daughter um so this is what you were talking about earlier when the man in black is saying like you know even after 30 years there's so much to continue to discover and like secrets to find out and he they, he makes a comment too about how you know the real world is chaotic and everything just happens by chance but everything that happens in westworld is there in a, in a way that is designed to fit together like a puzzle you know yep um so he he is there to get Lawrence to tell him about the entrance to the maze and he is intending to use Lawrence's family that he now knows about through Kissy the card dealer as leverage to get Lawrence to talk um so in um he kills the bartender the bartender has just called for backup from Lawrence's cousins whatever and then we have this very quick shot of Stubbs and another um you know lab tech who are Uh, watching the man in black's progress on one of these little screens and the lab tech asks Stubbs whether he should slow him down because he's already taken out a whole posse and Stubbs says that gentleman gets whatever he wants so I really took this to mean that Stubbs was treating the man in black as he would any guest which is that the guests are there to get what they want end of story don't interfere Um, interesting I read it the other way but like I do have a note on here yeah like I have a note that says like wouldn't he know this man after 30 years of going to the park I'm sure that most of the people who were observing everything that happened in the park would know the man in black you know probably by name they know they know all of the storylines he's done they know everything about him so I did find it weird that Stubbs didn't acknowledge that in some way but you think that he did Yeah, I think it's that, well, the fact that the tech even comes up and says, should we slow him down, to me indicates that they have in the past slowed guests down when they get a little bit kill happy. Because imagine, you really could go and shoot 2,000 hosts, really. Oh, yeah, that's true. Which would ruin everybody's time because suddenly, like, everybody would be dead. Um, So the fact that he asked that question and he almost expects, uh, yeah, for sure, go do X, whatever they do to slow them down. Um, but the fact that he doesn't, I felt really spoke to the fact that Man in Black gets to literally do whatever he wants. Right. So do you think that Stubbs and Co, do you think that they are aware of this quest that the Man in Black is on? They would have to be, wouldn't they? Yeah. I don't know. Would they though? Or wouldn't, wouldn't they see the Man in Black with the scalp that has a maze on it? Like, wouldn't they see... Or well, maybe they themselves was... are not aware. So totally. That's what I was kind of getting at earlier, where I was like, I don't think that everybody below Ford, including Bernard, have any idea that this maze or this deepest level of the game exists. Right, right. This yes. Yeah. Something that Ford left in there. And then even though they're watching this behavior, after 30 years, the men in black has just behaved this way for so long. Are they paying enough detailed attention to realize that he is on 
this very, very specific quest now? Or does this just look similar enough to everything that he's already been doing for so long that they're just kind of like, whatever. And yeah. they're not paying attention. And it doesn't strike them as strange that he's going after these specific characters in this order because they have no idea. Yeah, that that sound, I don't know. that sounds yeah. very plausible to me. I think you're probably right. Um, okay, so Lawrence's cousins arrive. The man in black kills them all. Um He has this um, kind of uh, interesting, you know, sort of narrative here where he's talking about the fact that he was practically born in um, Westworld. He's been coming here for 30 years and in a sense he was born here. And I thought that I took that to mean that kind of like in this same theme that we talked about true nature and true self and whatever that he, it wasn't until he came to Westworld 30 years ago that he kind of like um, discovered who he actually is. Um, And then he also um, talks about how the hosts are beautifully done, but after 30 years of, you know, being in the park, he started to see the cracks, which is why he likes to stick to the basic emotions, namely suffering, because suffering is when the hosts appear most real. So, yeah, I mean, everything he says here is, I find, very enlightening. But I thought that the, um, the in a sense, I was born here speaks to the exact opposite side of the coin of finding out who you really are compared to the superficial nature of William's friend. And I'm not explaining this overly well, but that the man in black who has discovered that there's this very deep layer um, and who is going after this, like, huge quest within the world and has obviously got very high goals which we can talk about but um that he truly is discovering who he is slash you know defining his future based on Westworld versus I'm just coming here for a weekend to yes for a bachelor party well he says too in in one of these scenes that um he's never going back like when, yes, Lawrence, when exactly. he, he does finally get yeah. the information that he wants and Lawrence says, okay, you have what you want now leave. And yeah. he says, you don't understand. Like I'm never leaving. And I know. So, so there's definitely a, yeah. yeah. So that ultimately, I don't know how it will happen or what would make sense, but ultimately I feel like that is, that must be the end result of the quest that he is on, that he is somehow going to discover how he could stay here forever. So then it made me think that maybe he, he is discovering the secrets to how he could, you know, like, um, I don't know, control the, the, the hosts himself or I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in, you know, in the one the one piece that we skipped before he's got what he wants and is, you know, gonna drag Lawrence away again is that um, when he kills, he ends up kills, killing um, Lawrence's wife. And it is actually Lawrence's daughter who then gives him the information that he wants. Um, so yep. she is reacting the way that any of the hosts would or would be programmed to. She's crying at the loss of her mother. And then in an instant is no longer emotional. She's actually like the most robotic, you know, sort of. Agreed. Sort of sort of like um, the way that a host would act in a way in the middle of a maintenance session in the lab where they are like almost entirely like um, without uh, any any character. They're just like emotionless robots. Um, yep. And so she tells the man in black that the maze is not meant for him. And the man in black says, I'll take my chances. And then she gives him the information, which is that 
he he needs to follow the blood arroyo to the place where the snake lays its eggs. Thoughts? What? <laughs> okay, so for for what oh, it's, there? Oh, okay. For for what it's worth, I looked up what an arroyo is, which is an arroyo is like a a creek bed that is intermittently dry. So gotcha. it it like dries out, and then it could have a flash flood. Um, so it's the blood arroyo. Which made me think that, you know, like a river of blood. I don't know. The man in black does not react as we just did, though. He's no. Like, what the fuck does he that seems mean? to be like? Takes sounds off. good. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. So much. Exactly. So, I do feel like that means something to him for sure, and that. So he, uh, another yeah. question: Do you think that it's coincidence that she is telling him to go where the snake lays its eggs? And in the very next scene, Ford and the little boy encounter a snake. I had not put that together. I think I think there might be like, I don't know. There's like something maybe there because obviously there's something about this place that Ford is. um, Right. This new story is going to be. Yes. Yeah. So that takes us to the next scene. Um, Yeah. And this may be the so the blood Oreo part. I wonder if that is a like non-literal name in the sense that they're in a place full of red rock and maybe that's just a right okay like but maybe it is a literal thing but I do agree that well these stories are gonna have to come together and they're not right now and there has still been no interaction between Ford and the men in black but I still feel like they they know each other somehow or there is some history or there is something because um, and whether that is just that the Ford knows him from being there for 30 years or whether there is something deeper, which is my feeling. I'm inclined nothing, yeah. to agree. Yes. Um, yeah. Again, and that, based on nothing. So then is it is. So, OK. Can I skip ahead for a second here? Please so do. Sizemore says Ford has never cared about the stories. Right. Yeah. He says that he's like he's never because earlier i think i think that already happened too right where cullen said what if four doesn't like it oh well he's never weighed in anyway um now suddenly we get a visceral reaction from ford to the suggested storyline and instead he is going to introduce his own that he's been working on at the same time that the man in black has finally found the map for the maze and the like second level you know of where it is. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, those are, everything is too coincidental to be independent. So has he had this storyline tucked in his pocket for ages and has just waited for him to get to this level of the man in black to get to this level to, or whoever it was to get to this level? I don't know. But I do feel like that's the fact that he's never cared about the story and suddenly he cares is a big deal. Right. Yeah. Thinking there's some connection there. Feels like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that for sure. And I also thought it was like the I really like that moment when the daughter just turns into like a gaming piece, you know? And yes. She just, it's like you've done everything you needed to in this level. Now you get to hear the like it feels so exactly. gamey. To it, me. Exactly. Like I really, yeah. I really kind of, um, uh, I kind of felt like I got it. 
I I got what the man in black meant by a deeper level to the game in this scene yeah. that I didn't necessarily understand in others, where it was yeah. like, you're right, it felt like he had gotten all necessary achievements in order yeah. to get the next piece in this puzzle. Um, it felt like he was advancing in a game. Um, because they busted out of their human emotions. Like, this is going right back to the fact that they're very robotic. Yes. Um, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're we're back with Ford and the little boy. Uh, so yes, we see a snake in um, in the the desert in front of them right after they talk about the snake eggs in the in the last scene. So I do think that there might be something there. Um, so they're just looking at sort of like a barren desert, and Ford is saying, you know, um, the the little boy calls it no man's land, and Ford says he isn't looking hard enough. And um, can you hear? You know, can you hear the bell tolling from the town with the white church? And there's nothing yeah. there, right? Um, but the boy says, yes, I can I can hear it. Um, so I don't know. Did you think that there was anything to that more than it was just like, you know. I think it's the God playing thing again. Right. So, you he know, was like exerting control his snake. control. Exactly. Yeah. And then he's able to make the host think he hears something and in enough of a way that they give the audience the cue too because suddenly we hear it as well right right um and then he says the thing about a nothing is magic except the magician like i think he yes everything is magic except to the magician and he of course is the magician yeah 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 yeah. um he loves that role same as you know you you can't act go like god unless without the devil that's a butchering of whatever he said earlier right like that sent that sentiment of how he feels and in control totally and although there is no you know town with a white church there is this like it's almost like a skeleton of like a church steeple it really kind of looks almost like an oil tower with a yeah with a um, cross at the top um, so that's the only thing that we can see in the distance, which then makes me think, I mean, like, is Ford alluding to what he intends to put there? Is yeah. he planning to put a town with a white with a white church? Do you know what I mean? Um, so he tells the little boy not to come back to this place. And uh, then this is when we kind of realize um, for certain that the boy is a host. That's right. Um, so at... At Ford's words, he becomes sort of like dazed and just walks away and says he won't come back. But again, this is this is um, so one of the themes that I had wrote written down. There were three that I wrote down. One was the dreams and nightmares. One was like discovering your true self or right. um, true nature. And then the third one was about the ability to communicate remotely with the hosts. So we already talked about a couple of examples, and I felt like this was another one where he was able to stop the snake with a gesture. He didn't say anything. He was able to get the snake to obey him with a gesture and then was able to give um, this boy host a command without without um, having to, like, you know, program it in some way. He simply said some words and although they didn't feel like really in-depth instructions to us, the viewer, to this boy, you know, he reacted in a way where, you know, like he, he, you know, drops his stick, he becomes, you know, sort of robotic again and walks away. Which I think is so Ford-like that, I mean, he has chosen to be able to control these hosts by having these, you know, 
phrases that he likes to say, I think it's going to get him in trouble in the long run because the thing about these phrases is I think that they can be, they don't just have to be uttered by Ford. Um, in some cases, mm-hmm. they're adopted company-wide, obviously, and they're used by all kinds of employees. But then in other cases, I think he's built little things in that are unique to him. Um, but then they're kind of starting to be taken over by the hosts themselves. But totally agree. This is part of, he doesn't, it, God complex doesn't work if the command is, you know, enter command. Can be used by any Yeah, anyone. or if it sounds super robotic too. And not robotic, but you know what I mean? Like programmy. Right. Um, then that, I think, takes him out of the godlike um, control kind of thing too. So he's intentionally written these in a way that is very human. That they same as um, put yourself to sleep with old Bill in the last episode right. too, right? It's, yeah, but like I think that I think too. Um, I don't know. I I definitely see the God complex for sure, but I also see Ford as. Like, he fashions himself an artist, I think. You know, despite the fact that he is a programmer, obviously, I think that he sees this as, um, you know, like a a piece of art that he is creating. And um, so he's giving it this, you know, very, um, like, lyrical flair with his um, commands instead of of it being programmy. He's making it beautiful. Yeah. It's just combined with, I think, this problematic level of control, which, I mean, obviously you want to have control, but I do think that this is what's, yes, going to arise as problematic. Yeah, Yeah, I can can see that for sure. Um, So a quick scene where we find out that Bernard and Cullen are a couple, or at least a regular Oh, a secret couple. couple. Um, Since they basically say that they never really talk after they hook up uh so it's pretty <laughs> quick but we do get which we did already talk about as well but that comment that he because she mentions your hosts are always talking even when no one's around and why is that and he mentions the error correcting that they're trying to make themselves more human and it's practice but of course as we discussed this also provides the opportunity for them to pass along information and dialogue amongst each other too i think yeah yeah definitely um, and then we have Maeve who's sitting in a lab and Elsie comes in with another um, scientist. So Maeve is supposed to be decommissioned. Um, so that is, I assume, why she's there. So she's been decommissioned and brought into the lab so that Elsie can like do what's necessary to put her down in cold storage. But Elsie is, you know, not having it. She's like, um, so they called the department, the storyline department that sent them their QA. So I don't know what that stands for. Quality but, assurance. Oh, um, so is the storyline department also quality assurance? That is probably they... makes sense. Cause I mean, it's definitely story people watching, but that would ex- explain the, like the in-depth watching that they can see that this isn't happening. You know what I mean? Um, so st- storyline is also quality assurance and behavior is also programming. Like programming. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so she runs a diagnostic. Elsie runs a diagnostic on um, Maeve. And it's really interesting. She's wearing these glasses that yeah. seem to allow her sort of an in-depth review of the state of Maeve without having to, you know, like without having to ask questions. She can just see. Um, so she can see that her aggression has been like bumped up through the roof. And 
Um, ultimately, all that Elsie does is she determines that she needs to have um, sort of more intuitive responses to the reaction that she's getting from the guests when Maeve is telling her stories and stuff. So she does some reconfiguration um, and then essentially says that Maeve is, is good to go. And the other scientists ask the question about whether they the hosts can dream because of course Maeve's story talks about how she dreams but Mm -hmm. Elsie says that they do not but they do have the concept of nightmares because in the in in the event that someone forgets to wipe them after a maintenance session they essentially can play it off with the host as if the host was having a nightmare um which is crazy yeah yeah, and we've already heard nightmares come up because they came up earlier with Clementine. And every time they do a maintenance session, when they ask a series of questions, they ask them, do you know where you are? And yeah. they say, yes, I'm in a dream. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but it's crazy to me, this idea that there is the potential that if some human person like does not appropriately wipe them that they will remember these things right like so instead of it like there's the element of an opportunity for human error there that I guess I hadn't really kind of put two and two together before totally and I still think there's the opportunity for even if they are wiped if the programming is written in a certain way that they would still be able to access those past memories absolutely agree there's there's both of those things possibly yes i mean it would seem as if that has happened in the past and that's why they have that um they have that as a fail safe i feel like there's a lot more human error in this episode in general anyway so yeah yeah um so then mave is good to go elsie um tells her she can go back into the park so not being decommissioned after all notices the physical discomfort as well because oh yes of course she's going in for surgery as well Right. I forgot yeah. that part. And that is interesting, too, because, um, well, essentially, it just made me think when Elsie says, I noticed some physical discomfort, she doesn't, I, I feel like that's phrased in such a way that it makes me wonder whether the hosts feel pain. Right. Um, because she didn't say, I noticed something in, you know, like, I noticed a foreign object in her body. You know, she says, I noticed physical discomfort. That. Yeah. You know, is that is also kind of a, a thinker. Yeah, no kidding. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So good to go on that one. So we see we're still um. We're with Maeve for the next little bit, actually, and so she's in the saloon and she's telling the same story, but this time because she has this additional intuition, uh, the guest is totally riveted by her and she pairs the guest with Clementine and they go upstairs. So, um, I don't know, it's interesting because sometimes it's like she's supposed to be the one hooking up and sometimes it's one of her girls. But anyway, the point is that she seems to be a lot more effective. And so Teddy is sitting at the bar, which he has been numerous times throughout this storyline. And, um, you know, they kind of have this conversation about her trade he says she you know the guests seem convinced um they talk about like their sins and then she makes a reference to that um when her girls are done with a man he's still breathing so uh we haven't seen a ton of 
Teddy storylines. I mean, obviously we see the milk bandits, I guess, and he got shot up in the big crazy shoot up with the bandit. But I mean, that was contrived and kind of atypical. Um, And as they're having this end of the conversation, they don't react, but there is a commotion going on behind them that you can hear voices yelling and an argument happening. And then Teddy is shot several times right beside Maeve. Um, His blood gets all over her. And it was just a guest, again, doing it because he can. I think he screams something like, what a vacation or something like that. Um, And just shoots Teddy I don't know, six or seven times in the chest. And yeah. Kinda. And I, th- I found this interesting too, because I mean, like, okay, so if you think about the reactions of some of the times that we've seen people get shot. So if you think back, um, Teddy getting shot and Dolores, obviously, who has emotions for Teddy, so it's somewhat different, but she is screaming and crying and she's reacting to his death. And then in this one, we have Maeve, who is absolutely unfazed by his death and just wipes the blood off of her arm. Yeah. So some of that probably has to do with who they are as a character in the relation to the person who's dying. Yeah. If Clementine were shot, for instance, instance, Maeve would probably have reacted differently. But it also kind of speaks to the level of, um, I guess, programming to react in some ways um, that's different than others, right? Like, so we have seen, you know, Dolores's family get shot up. And part of that storyline is Dolores is obviously going to be devastated. Um, But when a random person is shot as not not within part of a narrative storyline or whatever, it seems like there was very little reaction from anyone. Um, so I don't know if that means anything or if it was just that Teddy didn't mean much to the people who happened to be in the saloon. Um, but I found it interesting that there was virtually no reaction from anyone when he was just shot like seven times in the middle of the saloon. Yeah. I mean, if, to me, it speaks of like a really a, like typical old west story where there's just a lot of gunfighting and the you know madam and the bartender just continue on and it's not that unusual kind of thing um and enough yeah yeah but i know what you absolutely i mean the the reactions are incredibly different depending on on who it is and and what's happening um, and then it was also interesting in this scene where, you know, when Maeve says when I'm when her girls are finished with a man, he's still breathing yeah. um, and that her sins are easier to wash off than Teddy's. So right. I think she's alluding to the fact that Teddy has killed someone in his yeah. in his storyline story past. Line, yeah. yeah. Which he seems kind of gentle, you know, and yeah, it's kind of. But we, uh, we don't know why why Teddy left town. So no. we know that he in in this storyline, at least that's right. He had an acquaintance with Dolores and he's left town for some time. And now he is back after some time. Of that's course, right. no time has passed. Like none of that actually happened. That's just like what the mutual memory of the, you know, the programming of Dolores and Teddy and whatever. Yeah. Um, but we don't know what that what that is. Maybe he left town because he killed someone. Um, Okay, so Maeve is readying herself for bed and she's getting more and more flashes of this memory. And so this time we kind of see more of it. So she is like in the country. This is obviously like a past storyline for her, I would assume. So she is not the madam um, of a saloon. She's a mother to a little girl out in the country on a farm. Um, And then suddenly the you know memory goes from these pleasant you know like um interactions with her daughter to her being held 
by um, the hair and a knife to her scalp by like a Native American man, like all painted in white. Um, and so some cowboy, you know, shows up and um, and kills him, but but he himself is then killed and um, there are other attackers. Um, so Maeve runs with her daughter into the house and gets a gun to defend herself. And then we see like one of these, you know, like paint, painted warrior style um, Native Americans who are like walking towards the door. Um, but then when the door opens, it's the man in black, uh, not not the, you know, the the native man in, um, you know, like in paint that we yeah. had seen just through the window a moment before. And so Maeve shoots the man in black. But of course, there's no um, there's no impact. And then he has a giant knife and starts walking towards Maeve. And um, and this is this is the scene that made me think, too, that maybe. He, like essentially the man in black has scalped everybody before he found Kissy. Right. Um, because it really appears to me as if he is walking towards Maeve with the intention of, of scalping her. Am I reading too much into that? No, I, I think it's a definite possibility for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, so she closes her eyes and counts backwards from three which is we had already talked about, you know, either some kind of ability by her to, you know, to potentially reset herself or maybe just some kind of, you know, like, um, I don't know if it's like muscle memory almost, you know, where it's like something that she has done in the past with the um, maintenance sessions and she she does them in her life in Westworld as well. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So she she closes her eyes this time and counts backwards from three and you hear like a electronic noise that almost sounds like a reset. Yes. Um, yeah, that's true. Although I thought that that was simply bleeding into the next. The lab I thought guys? That, yeah. Yes. Because um, of course, when when we see Maeve next, she's no longer in Westworld. She's like on a surgical table. Yes. Yeah. No, maybe it is. It definitely like, so there was an, yeah, you switch from the memory obviously to the real life. So maybe that's all it is. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I guess, you know, so this is the end of her rotation. Elsie, Elsie has, um, ordered a physical for this like discomfort that she noticed, um, at the end of Maeve's next rotation. Um, so she is obviously there now in, you know, in the lab getting her physical. That's right. Um, so she's on the table. We can hear the two lab techs uh, speaking. We're waking up with her, but they don't realize this yet. So they are saying that they found MRSA in her abdomen uh, because they're not being cleaned properly. I mean, it would be pretty horrific what these guys are going through. Uh, in terms of what the hosts are going through in terms of exposure to bacteria, et cetera. And he, they also mentioned that no wonder we have so many flies around, which was interesting. Um, so this is essentially like, essentially like she has like a staph infection? It's like a really antibiotic resistant bacteria. Yeah. And once you have MRSA or have been exposed, there's an issue with it. Like when they get in hospitals, um, it's very, very difficult to get rid of it. It's a really persistent infection. 
But like, okay, so this, so I looked it up, right, when I when I saw yeah. on closed captioning that they did, in fact, say MRSA. Yeah. And I Googled it to see what it was. And I saw that it was this bacterial infection. And I was like, oh, well, they must mean something else. Because if she's not a biological, you know, if she doesn't have functioning biological tissue. No, but this is, I think they do. But didn't didn't remember we talked about that in the last episode where we were talking about like, you know, because we were we were talking about the fact that they bleed and that when yep. they built the horse, they were putting in the organs, but they were all white and whatever. And then I th- I can't remember all of the discussion that we had on it, but I thought that we kind of landed on that they had all of the appropriate biological parts, but that, that this was they did not actually have like, you know, Fun- functioning biological bodies. But I think if you have, even with a hybrid, I think if you have human tissue, then you're able to get infected. Or if they have live tissue, maybe human tissue is the wrong because but Because that is incredibly, like important information for us to have if they if they in in effect are telling us that she is able to get an infection because she has live tissue i mean that is that's kind of were you thinking that the skin was like synthetic well i i mean i did i thought that it was um I mean, I thought that it was live tissue when we were talking about it in the last yeah. um, episode. Um, but I guess, I mean, like, I, I, I can't remember why it was that we landed on it not being, like, functioning biologically. But, I mean, you, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, like, a, a fully functioning, um, like, end-to-end biological, yeah. um, you know, like creature for it to have live tissue agreed i mean i think i think there's probably a hybrid here but the crazy thing about that horse being assembled is that it's a frame i mean these guys don't look like terminator underneath i guess is the point you know they they yes. are structured because the way that they are built are. out right like yeah. like layer by layer we yeah. see them have the skeleton built we see them have the muscle layer put on we see them have organs that are inserted and we know that they bleed because remember it was the discussion that we were having about Kissy because the right. man in black had bled him out until he only right. had three liters of blood yet left. And we were talking about how he really seemed to be treating him as if he had functioning biology the same as a human. Like, yeah. does it matter if there's only three liters of blood left if he's a robot? Would that really stop him from, Moving. you know? from moving right unless he functions exactly like a human person yeah i mean this time we did see one of the people who had been scalped in the scene with Maeve earlier and there is skull underneath it um or what looks like skull for sure so it's a good point i guess i was hearing it thinking okay they they have human tissue and they have certain human parts and then other parts would be mechanical um, but the fact that you have human tissue means that you would be exposed to, um, and a, like a an, an infection like that. Like, what if they have completely human and are like living and functional bodies, and then essentially their brains are a, a computer? 
Yeah, and the central nervous system. I mean, the question would be, what do they have nerve endings and do they feel things? I mean, because that was another question that I had, right? Is that, okay, so in this scene um, or later in this scene, yeah, I think um, I think it's right here where, where Maeve wakes up and her abdomen has been cut open. Mm-hmm. And so when she runs out of that room, she is hunched over in pain, you know? And that in my notes, I was like, is she hurting right now? I don't understand because her abdomen is sliced open. And so she is wounded, but she isn't walking like the Terminator with a slice in her, you know, like um, skin layer. She's she is hunched over as if she is in agony. But she's able to move so quickly and so substantially. I mean, I feel as though a human would not be able to move like that with that kind of wound. Maybe so. Like, I'm not suggesting that they're entirely human. I'm just thinking that, like, you know, in the same way that I was kind of half expecting the robot with his hand, you know, getting stabbed to almost not react because he's a robot. Why would he react? You know what I mean? And that almost came as a shock to me, even though I should have expected it. Um, Like, I guess I... I myself as a viewer am kind of having a hard time in some of these scenes to like shed my expectation of how a robot should react um, because they're so human and lifelike that, you know, maybe they're not entirely humanly biological, but I think they're far, you know, like far less, less robot than, you know, like um, anything that, you know, we might, we might think of ourselves when we think that these are like, androids or humanoid or whatever like i don't know um i think part of it is that we don't know i mean there certainly is that we haven't seen what happens between when they come out um of the you know the white pool of liquid um and are being that's as close to them being made as we've seen and that's also the opening sequence we saw the horse but even the horse went from skeleton to suddenly completely covered in skin uh, and we yeah. saw the, you know, the hair being kind of put on it. So I do think it's a good point. And at some point, are we going to learn a bit more as to what exactly these guys look like? Uh, we do get a little bit of a better look where Maeve runs into here. Um, you know, she ends up in this kind of what looks like a butcher shop right of the bodies being stripped and hosed down and cleaned off before they're obviously being returned back into Westworld because we see Teddy there Um, yes so this was like this was great too because this was a question that we had raised specifically in the last episode about like what are the logistics and I really love that this show has not kind of left it to like suspend your disbelief and just you know just know that they somehow get back in the park. Like, they're actually showing us how it's being done. Yeah. And, like, if Teddy weren't there, I might have jumped to the conclusion that these were hosts that were being pulled out in order to make room for Sizemore's, um, you know, new storyline hosts. But because Teddy is there, I think what you're right, that what we're seeing is the process that they go under to get a host that has been killed by a guest back into commission to start their loop over again. Yeah. Agreed. I think, um, you know, there's that there's that comment in the last one where it's a Dolores, don't be fooled because, you know, every piece of her has been changed out. Basically, she's the oldest host in the park Um, that it would be in this scenario that that happens, that they get completely new limbs or internal organs or whatever it is. Um, And that's why it looks like such a butcher shop, chop shop shop. 
kind of place. And, right. Um, and um, so Maeve is obviously like horrified. She drops to her knees and then is carted back by the two lab techs who have caught up with her. But before she runs out of their lab, she grabs a scalpel and, to like defend herself. She's obviously terrified. And she is threatening the lab techs with it. So you know given that the hosts are programmed to never hurt a living thing do you think that this is um an instance where we are shown that Maeve um you know is perhaps capable of hurting a living thing I don't know though because like she tries sort of to like... shoot yeah she tries to shoot the men in black too right so I do think there's they've certainly in their storylines tried to hurt living things before They've just yes. never successfully done it. So I think the reason the guys are so freaked out is because she is not in Westworld and what could happen, like, could she have hurt them in the sense that it can't work in Westworld because there's technical things to, like, cover that? I don't know. Um, but, I mean, if it can't be that they never threaten humans. They threaten humans all the time. Yes, exactly. Um, Even the man in black, I was, I was, um, I thought this was interesting that like he was tackled by yeah, one of the cousins, right. like Lawrence's cousins in the middle of the shootout. So, yeah. I mean, like, I think that had, you know, the man in black actually been tackled to the ground, that the host would probably not have been able to like, agreed, beat him, yeah, but, or strangle you know, him or something. Yeah, agreed. But they can obviously, you know, they can take some steps or at that's least, right. you know, the, programmed you know sort of um reaction to threats that you know you would expect from a realistic storyline yes agreed um so we're back to dolores in her bed waking up in the middle of the night so we've already talked about this a little bit this is an identical scene to what we saw in the opening scene of the show whether or not we are seeing the same scene twice or whether this is happening on more than one night and it simply looks the same because, of course, Dolores is identical every night when she goes to bed. I'm I'm not sure. My initial reaction is that it was the same, the exact same scene that we as a viewer were just seeing I felt the that rest too. of. Yeah. Yeah. So she is woken by this voice. She goes out into the yard um, in her nightgown. And then she says, here, question mark, you know, so she is asking the voice, um, whether she's in the right place, which made me feel like this was a two-way dialogue that was happening live, you know. Um, this wasn't, to me at least, some kind of programming that no, was I like em- emerging yeah. in her mind. Like this was a live interaction with a person. Um, and she starts digging in the dirt and finds a gun. Um, So I have questions about the significance of the gun um, because the show obviously alerted us through the tone and music and whatever that this was a big deal. (laughs) But like if the gun is in Westworld, like I'm thinking that this isn't a Westworld gun. I agree. Because it's a real gun. Yeah. It is a real gun that could hurt a human. And there's been enough references to the fact that the guns in Westworld are are not real. I mean, we got that even earlier in this episode. We got uh, real enough. So if this is someone has hidden a honest-to-God legit gun in Westworld, it would enable a host to be able to kill a person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, that's exactly how I took that as well. Um, Despite the fact that the gun obviously looks like old timey and it's like a, you know, like it, it doesn't look at a place in terms of how it looks, but um, 
I think that it is in fact a true, a true gun that could wound a human. Um, so who planted the gun there? I assume it's the same person whose Who's voice is talking to talking Dolores. to her. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. In which case, it's somebody who can go into the park um, without raising any red flags. But I do think that is a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm assuming that it could be... The, I'm assuming that it's not a guest, given that they have access to... Agreed. You know, programming and whatnot. Yeah, no, um, So I don't know to what extent people who work in Westworld are able to um, travel freely into the park, but we have seen several people go in thus far. So, you know, yeah. maybe there's a lot of opportunity. Um... And then we have Sizemore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have talked about this one a fair bit too, but he is introducing his new storyline. It comes off very much as a, like almost like a high-tech launch, you know, like Apple would do or something. He's got all of everyone standing behind him. He's got like a screen portraying the name of it and everything. And it sounds completely debaucherous and awful. The storyline has self-cannibalism and raping and pillaging, etc. And so this yeah. is where Ford comes out and says, no, we know he never does that, but he does here. And just like we've said as well, um, he doesn't see the point of it because it's cheap thrills. And his whole point of the reason that people go and the people that they discover are not who they already are. Um, it's who they could be and that they're there for the subtleties and that the story needs to be a lot more nuanced. Um, so Ford is speaking and overlaid on top of that is Dolores's same old story of her dropping the can and this time William, William picks it up and there is definitely a moment of him kind of gazing into her eyes and there seems to be a connection there before he's called away uh, by yeah. that friend. So uh, yeah, Ford's speech. I do think we've we've kind of uncovered it, but it's it's definitely leading into the fact that he is going to introduce this new storyline. That the the whole the whole remark that he makes about it's not about who they are already; it's about who they could be. Yeah. That made me think that Ford is trying to build some kind of utopia or something. Right. Um, you know, this kind of like new society where people have have. Um, I don't know, they have um, shed all of these, like, I don't know, horrible um, uh, fantasies and desires and whatever. And instead, they have, like, this utopian society where people are striving to be better. I don't know. Yeah, I think... The fact that Ford has not weighed in as Sizemore has been doing all of these horrific storylines says to me that he has just been working away quietly on something else and that now we're at a head as to where he's introducing it. I think you're you're probably really on to something there, Kim, because he's trying to, you know, create these perfect creatures himself and then how could he introduce humans into it that they would interact in a way that would be you're right utopic is a really good point um yeah yeah it's like a god complex that now is going to extend beyond the robots and into the actual human race yes yeah he's yeah i think that um it it just made me think that this new storyline that he's about to introduce to him at least is is more than than a storyline i think that this is him you know trying to create the best of all yeah worlds you know yeah um um we have the final scene it's uh ford in those boots because the only thing he liked about size story was the boots 
Um, and he's with Bernard, and this is where, you know, the Bernard is mentioning the board is not going to be happy because they want a new storyline, and that Ford says they're going to get something he's been working on for quite some time, and we're back at that steeple oil rig thing that we saw earlier. Yeah, so I find I do find that that... Um... Like, that's really interesting. Obviously, this this structure, whatever it is, holds yeah. a lot of importance. They definitely placed a lot of weight on it as the final shot of the um, of the show. Um, so then, yeah, that I, I don't know what it is. I'm really interested to find out. Um, someone had to have put that there. I assume that Ford, you know, Ford has marked this place in some way. Um, I don't know. I I think that there might be history with that structure specifically. Agreed. It definitely has significance. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is, but absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll have to wait and see. We shall see. <laughs> the one thing I'll say is that they move the story quite substantially through each of these episodes. So I do think it won't be long. Yeah. You know, How many like, episodes... Are there in a in the season? Do that you know? is an excellent question that I do not know the answer to. I feel like normally there I would expect maybe ten. Yeah, I mean it's definitely not a. I'm just looking it up now. Me too. Yeah, it is um, ten. Yeah. Okay, that sounds right because um, we talked about this a little bit with Stranger Things that only had an eight episode season one. Um, that that part of having a shorter season um, is that the storytelling for the most part ends up being quite concise with That's right. um, less filler um, than you know than other shows might Agreed. have that have like you know 13 episodes or on network tv sometimes like 22 episodes right um, it's the same like game of thrones has a 10 episode season and like i feel that that is um, a really good number of episodes to really make a lot of progress on the you know the storyline and also not have tons of filler yeah absolutely as much as i would love to see many more episodes of this show but 10 great episodes is better than 15 you know mediocre mediocre ones exactly so yes okay well another lengthy discussion (laughs) um but you know what i mean like i have so much fun just like going through all of the details. So um, listeners, if you have stuck with us for for this long, then um, you are obviously a detail-oriented person like (laughs) Jess and myself. And so hopefully enjoy the amount of sort of um, analysis that we do on even the more minute aspects of the show. So we'll be back with lots more talk next week for episode three. Absolutely. Um, So please don't forget to... um, rate and um, comment on iTunes and uh, you can find us on KJ Recaps uh, on Twitter and KNJ Recaps on Facebook. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Kim. We'll talk soon. Okay. Yes. Bye. Bye.